Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are doing things a little bit different today. Unlike my normal procedure, we're not going to take a verse and start and keep going until we get tired and stop. We are, in fact, going to talk about the doctrinal statement of the church. Uh, I think we've got about 10 lessons left in the year, or 11 or 12 or something. You should have a copy of it. They are circulating around. I have plenty of them because people come and go. So the question is, why do we have such a thing? Where did it come from, and what does it mean? Well, in 1980, if my wife is correct, and she usually is, Harriet, sitting right here, and a bunch of other people formed Christ Chapel. I don't know if you've ever noticed, she has a badge up here that says Charter Member. There's uh, not as many of them as there once were. We actually joined the church in 1988. Uh, The only way I come close to remembering how old the church is, is they had the 10th anniversary celebration of the church. Big thing. I mean, we had guest speakers. We went and met at the the zoo, actually, in one of their buildings, had a big lunch, and we were going to have a great party on Saturday night. Uh, They need some back there. We were going to have a great party on Saturday night, but we stopped at a restaurant for lunch, and we made it home before Teresa's water broke. (laughs) So... We have a daughter that's born on the 10th anniversary. That's the only way I can have any clue of when the church was started. The document you have in your hand is the Constitution of Christ Chapel. It starts with a very simple preamble. We, the members of Christ Chapel Bible Church, do adopt and establish the following articles to which we voluntarily submit ourselves. This is what they agreed to do. The next section is the uh, purpose of the church. We're not going to read through that. The next section is the doctrinal statement, and the rest of it is the structure of the church. We are not going to go through those sections. We're only going to go through section two. Now, article two. Now, it is interesting for you to read the rest of it. Because that tells how we elect elders, how we elect deacons. Remember, we did that last week. It talks about how we uh, oversee things. It talks about the fact that our church will not take on debt. That's one of the uh, things that we have. So all of that is in the structure of the church. We'll have a very brief mention of one paragraph of that today, but... Otherwise, we're going to do Article 2, which is the doctrinal statement of the church. Years, years ago, I think after I was out of college, I don't remember, but before I got married, our pastor that we'd had for millennia retired, and you know that it takes a while even to get an interim pastor, so one of the other pastors at the church took over the preaching assignment. And the first Sunday night service, we were good Baptists. We had Sunday night services. Just saying. He handed out this little pamphlet. 
I had never seen this before. It was the Baptist faith and message. It is the doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Church. I'd been a Southern Baptist literally since the day I was born. And I had never seen this piece of paper. And he said, we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to go until, well, they get an interim pastor and they kick me out. So we started section one. And I just thought it was great. Here is what we as a church believe. Now, I knew what we believed because I had sat through sermons forever. But to hear it in a concise format was very valuable to me. Now, you know what this church believes. You've sat through sermons, you've sat through my lessons, and I haven't said too much that, no, I haven't said anything that violates the doctrinal statement of the church because I signed a piece of paper that said I wouldn't do that. So, the first thing we need to address is why do we need a doctrinal statement? Why should we study this doctrinal statement? I have, in this class, made the comments at different times, the doctrinal statement of the church says such and such. And afterwards, I'm not making this up, I've, afterwards I've had people come up to me and say, why do you say that? Why do we even have a doctrinal statement? Why don't we just say, it's the Bible? Well, obviously we are a Bible church and the Bible is what we believe. In fact, today, in the first section of the doctrinal statement, we're going to go over the Scripture, the Bible. Obviously, that's true that the Bible is where we get our understanding of God, of us, of theology, of life, of fill-in-the-blank with everything else. So if that's the case, why do we need a doctrinal statement? Are we adding something on to the Bible that we shouldn't have there. If you read, um, if you read the Roman Catholic uh, doctrinal statement, okay, this big thick book, there, you know, here's what we believe. There's the Bible, and then there's some other stuff, because they believe that the papacy has the right, the authority to come up with some additional teaching. Okay, is that what we're doing? Well, the answer to that is no. What we are trying to do is clarify what we mean when we talk about certain subjects. For example, today's lesson is on the Bible, the Scripture. You can go to thousands and thousands of churches in the country today, and if you ask them, they would say, sure, we believe the Bible. And you go, great, it's a Bible-believing church. But then you start talking to them about what does that mean? Well, we believe that the Bible is a source of wisdom, like other books. We believe the Bible contains the Word of God, but there's some other pieces that are just myth. We think the Bible is great and wonderful when it talks about theology, but when it talks about History and science, eh. And what you begin to understand is that people say we believe the Bible, but they don't necessarily believe the Bible as we understand the Bible 
talks about itself. In the same way you talk about God, oh yeah, 90-something percent of Americans say they believe in God. Even all of those people who reject organized religion, most of them believe in God. But what do they mean when they talk about God? Well, he's this great loving guy who wants us all to be happy. Or he's this or he's that. So it is necessary for us to clarify, not to add on in any form or fashion to what the Scripture is telling us, but to clarify certain things about our understanding of the Scripture. And that's why we have a doctrinal statement. Otherwise, otherwise, you're going to have confusion. You may not be aware of this, but in the beginning of our church, we actually had three pastors, and one of them, who will remain nameless, decided he wanted to have a charismatic church, you know, speaking in tongues and all that stuff. And guess what? The elder said, no, we're not going to do that. And one of the things you'll see back in that latter part of the Constitution is the elders are responsible for this church, not the pastors, the elders. And they said, no. Based on our understanding of the Scripture, we're not going to go down that path. In the same way, somebody comes and says, I want to teach. Great, you ought to teach. What are you going to teach? Well, I've been reading some really good books. I want to teach that. That's why the elders of the church, did I happen to mention the elders of the church are responsible for the church? These elders of the church have the teachers sign a piece of paper saying that I'm not going to teach that, which violates the doctrinal statement of the church. I don't know how much of this I should tell you, but I was actually called in for a discussion two weeks ago when I, was, when I mentioned I was going to teach the doctrinal statement. Are you going to, I'm going to teach the, okay, we're good, okay? It wasn't much of a conversation. But that's the responsibility of the elders about who is preaching and who is teaching in this church. And that's based on this understanding of the Scripture. Now, are you saying, Kyle, if I don't believe everything in this document, they're going to run me out of the church? And the answer to that is no. There's an interesting paragraph, at least it's interesting to me, if you look back in one of those other sections, it happens to be uh, the, in my copy right where the staples are on page 13, qualifications for membership. This is what you need to believe in order to join this church. Okay? <sighs> Express your personal faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Shall agree that Jesus is God. He was virgin born, that he died a voluntary substitution for sinful man, that he bodily raised from the dead, that God imputes righteousness to the believers upon acceptance of faith of his son Jesus, as, uh, son as savior, and gives the believers eternal life, that Jesus would bodily return to the earth, and the Bible is the inerrant word of God. That's what you have to believe to join this church. I'm a sinner, Jesus died for my sins, and I believe and accept that. And guess what? You can join the church. 
We're not going to run anybody off. In fact, you can sit in the pew every day of your life and not even believe that. Yeah, I would hope you would eventually because we believe that's kind of important. So, no, nobody's starting a witch hunt to purify the church of people who disagree with the doctrinal statement. That isn't going to happen. I see that all the time in here, believe it or not. The biggest topic I see is when I talk about, and we will in a couple of weeks, the fact that you cannot lose your salvation. Because we do have people in here who come from different backgrounds, and they want to tell me, sure, what about this verse that says you're going to lose your salvation? Okay? There are people who believe that. I am not one of those people. But we do have a variety of different opinions in the church. And you know what? That's okay. But we also clarify this is our understanding of what the Scripture teaches. And that's why we have a doctrinal statement. That's why it's good for us to understand what the church is teaching. So, where did our doctrinal statement come from? Well, 15 years ago, I would have told you our doctrinal statement is exactly the same as the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. Our congregation is a Bible church. The Bible church movement grew out of, well, Dallas Theological Seminary provided pastors for Bible churches. So our doctrinal statement is the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. There's a problem with that, though, and that is, if you look on page 12, before section 12, uh, 22, there's a statement that says the doctrinal statement this doctrinal statement is the complete and unaltered doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. Everything above that, sections 1 to 21, are taken from, that are not taken from, they are the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. But our elders and our congregation voted on it, of members, added two sections. Remember, I commented that we need to clarify what is meant by certain things. You go to a church today in the country, lots of churches, and say, do you all believe in marriage? And they're going to say, yes, we believe in marriage. What do you think marriage is? And they're going to go, uh, two people who love each other, whatever. And the elders of our church felt that it was imperative that we specify very clearly what we think marriage is. So two sections were added, one on marriage and one on sexuality. It is interesting to me that this would even be necessary. But in the world that we live in today, it is necessary. And that's why we put it in. That's why the elders put it together. And the importance of that is that when somebody comes and joins the church and says, yes, ma'am. Uh, in the last 10 years, 
What, do you remember when it was added, these two sections? I remember when it happened. I don't remember the date, though. So, yeah. Uh, recently. <laughs> to me, 10 years is recent. But So, we want there to be no ambiguity about what we understand the Scripture to teach on these topics. So, other than those two sections, the rest of it is the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, it is interesting. This week, I went to the Dallas Theological Seminary website, and they actually have this doctrinal statement, which all faculty have to agree to. But you know what? You can be a student of Dallas Theological Seminary and not agree with the entire doctrinal statement. Now, hopefully by the time you graduate, they've convinced you. But it's just an acknowledgement that people go to Dallas Theological Seminary from a lot of different backgrounds. I've talked with people from a Reformed background who thought Dallas Theological Seminary was one of the best places in the world to learn the languages, but they didn't particularly like learning the doctrine there. So people go there for a variety of different reasons. Now, one more point, and we'll be on our way. Teresa and I are rereading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. If you have read it, you ought to read it again. But he gives an illustration at the beginning of the book that I think is pertinent to this. And he actually admits that he stole it from somebody else, okay? And the guy's image was you're in Spain and you're in a hotel and you're sitting on the balcony and you're watching everything happen. You know, it's kind of sitting there seeing life go by. And he referred to those as balconiers. I think he made the word up, okay? The people sitting on the balcony. And he compared that to the people who are actually traveling, the people who are actually coming through, living life. And he said, when we talk about theology, we have people who kind of stand above it and talk about it as if it's some abstract thing. You know, let's sit here and argue about the doctrine of predestination, Ooh, we can have lots of good arguments. I can get you mad, you can get me mad, we can yell and scream, but it's a nice abstract theological thing. But then he says there are people who take that theology and they use it in their everyday life. When we finish today's section on the scripture, I don't want you to walk away and go, yes, I have a firm understanding of that and act like it didn't make any difference. Your life should be effective, affected if you believe the Scripture is the Word of God given to us. It's more than just a theoretical thing. It is an aspect of your daily walk through life. What you think about God should affect everything that you do. If it doesn't, you're just uh, sitting on the balcony watching life go by. So, anyway, we're going to talk about the Scripture. As I said, we are a Bible church. Gosh, we just brought in a crowd of people. The choir left and... 
well, why don't you go give them a copy? If you were putting together a systematic theology book, you could start in a couple of different places. You can start with your understanding of humanity, who we are. Why would you start that? Well, because that's us. I mean, that's where we start working our way to knowing the world. You could start with God, because God is, well, the center of everything that exists. Or you could talk, start with the scripture, because that's how we understand everything else. And that's what the doctrinal statement does, and that's what we're going to do today. Now, we believe all of the sections are going to start with we believe something. This is what we understand the scripture to teach. We believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, by which we understand the whole Bible is inspired in the sense that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of scripture. We're going to jump ahead. We're going to break this piece by piece. Second Timothy. It's sitting in front of you, remember? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. What do we believe? All scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. It is given to us directly by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, there are different ideas about what inspiration means. Here are some odd ones. The next chart has the one we believe, in case you're curious. There are those who believe God sat down and he dictated to Matthew, say this, this word, this word, this word, this word, the next word, the next word, and so on and so forth. That is a mechanical inspiration. The author of each book was simply taking dictation. Now, the problem with that is, if that's true, why don't they all sound exactly alike? Why doesn't Matthew sound like John? We know they don't sound the same. So if it was just being dictated, wouldn't they sound alike? Partial inspiration. I come to Chris and I say, go write something about how good God is. And Chris goes and writes something about how good God is. So it is partially inspired, but it isn't totally inspired, which takes us to the next one. Some parts of the Bible are more inspired than others. And what you get into is this idea that this part is important. It's inspired by God. This part, well, not so much. Somebody just threw that in. Well, obviously, from what I'm talking about, you know that we don't agree with that. We believe the entire text of Scripture, including the very words, are a product of the mind of God 
expressed in human terms and conditions. Both divine and human elements are present in the production of Scripture. What does that mean? God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Matthew to write the book of Matthew. And Matthew is the Word of God. But along with that Word of God, not along with, but in the style of a human author by the name of Matthew. So Paul's letters sound like they were written by Paul. John's letters sound like they were written by John, but they are all the Word of God. It is the human author being inspired by the Holy Spirit so that the actual words are the Word of God. That's what we believe the Scripture teaches us. We believe that this divine inspiration extends equally and fully to all parts of the writings, historical, poetical, doctrinal, and prophetical, as appear in the original manuscripts. Now, the word original manuscript is interesting, and it caused some people to have difficulties. You know, right, that we do not have the copy of Matthew that Matthew sat down and wrote. I mean, it's just not going to exist. What we have is Matthew giving the copy to someone and they making a copy of it. And we have very old manuscripts. If you remember, uh, Stuart, a couple of months ago, gave a very detailed discussion of the manuscripts that we have. And we have lots of them. So that's why the word original manuscripts is put in there. The key to this is that we think every piece of the Bible is the Word of God. Why is that important? Well, in the middle of the 1800s, this guy by the name of Charles Darwin came up with this theory of evolution. Well, he didn't come up with the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution had been around for a long time, but he came up with a mechanism that allowed the theory of evolution to work. And people started jumping on this, going, well, that's got to be right because it's science. And a lot of people said, okay, the first eh, three chapters of Genesis, they're just myth. I mean, it's a true myth, but it's just a myth. And then some people started thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure about this idea of a universal flood, you know, Noah and all that stuff. So let's just say the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis are just kind of a myth of what happened. Well, then people started saying, you know, where is Abraham buried? I have no idea where he's buried. Why do we even think he exists? The only reason we think he exists is because the Bible says so. So let's just say the whole book of Genesis is a myth. And pretty soon, you're walking through the Bible wondering where the myth ends and the Word of God starts. Well, we believe that it starts in Genesis 1, 1, when God created the earth. Now, we do understand 
What does it say? Historical, poetical, doctrinal, and prophetical. You read Psalms, and Psalms is poetry. Poetry uses very vivid imagery. And you know what? That's okay. We understand that the style of writing is different here than there, and what you expect from it is different. It's poetry. It is the word of God, but it is still poetry, and that's okay. We also understand that sometimes they round numbers off, and you know, that's how people talk. Did you also know? Wait, don't pick up your bricks yet. There are things that are in the Bible that are wrong. Why are they wrong? Well, if I tell you a lie and you write down what I told him, when you write it down, you're going to write down this statement that I made, and it's a lie. But you are writing down an accurate statement of what I said. Okay? There are people in the Bible who lie, cheat, and steal, and whatever. And you know what? All of that's recorded faithfully. It is. It is recorded faithfully. So, 1 Corinthians 2.13. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. I have told you before in here, I have uh, read the sayings of Confucius multiple times. I actually like them. They're pretty good. But you know what they are? They're good, pithy sayings about how you ought to live your life. They are not spiritual truths in spiritual words. There is a distinction between them. We believe that the whole Bible in the originals, therefore, is without error. Why is it important? that it is without error. This is the debate, the debate of the last 200 years. The problem with it, if it's not without error, is I am going to pick and choose which pieces I like. We've mentioned before Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament, he took his scissors, and he started cutting out the pieces that he liked and pasting them in a book. Okay? He liked the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't like all those miracles. He liked the discussions about being good to your neighbors. He didn't like this discussion of hell. And he sat there with his scissors, and he cut out certain pieces and said, I like this one. The rest of it goes into the trash bin. And that's what every one of us is going to do if we begin to think it is full of errors. What it does is it sets us up as the authority over the Scripture. One of my favorite examples of this, I've mentioned this multiple times in here, is the pink letter edition of the Bible. Do you remember this? Many of you have a red-letter edition of the Bible. You open the book of Matthew, and the words of Jesus are printed in red. 
Well, this organization got together and they decided, well, we know Jesus didn't say all these things. So they voted. The committee voted. And if everybody agreed Jesus said it, it went in red. And if everybody agreed Jesus didn't say it, it went in black. And between red and black, they were shades of pink. So if half of them said it, it's this shade. If a third of them said it, it's this shade. They're just voting on it. The problem is once you get started, who is the authority? Who is the authority? Next week, we're going to talk about God. Of course, right? If there is a God who is intelligent, personal, that is, he has a personality, and he wants to communicate to humanity, and he wants to communicate to humanity, don't you think he could? And that's how we understand the scripture coming into existence. We believe that all scripture center around the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work in his first and second coming, and hence that no portion, even of the Old Testament, is properly understood unless it, until it leads to him. And here's this great verse from Luke. You remember, Jesus has uh, resurrected. He runs into some disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you just love to have a copy of that sermon? A recording. I would take it on a, even a cassette, right? A reel-to-reel, -reel, whatever. Jesus started back in Genesis and he walked through to show these disciples why what happened was all about him. Explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, you read the Old Testament, and the Old Testament points to Jesus. You can start in the Garden of Eden... You can work your way through the sacrificial system. You can work your way through the law. You can work your way through event. You can get to the prophets. You can go through the Psalms. All of those point to. Why is that important? Because it gives us the unity of the scripture. Now, in a couple of weeks, I don't know how many, we're going to talk about dispensations. We are a dispensational church. What that means is that God works in different ways at different times in Scripture. That's just a given, right? But it doesn't mean that Jesus is not present throughout the Old Testament history. We also believe that all Scripture was designed for our practical instruction. And here's the passage that we just read so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
here comes the practical part of that. I can read the Bible. I can study the Bible. I can be real smart about the Bible. In fact, I can use the Bible to beat you over the head with. But the purpose of the Bible is to help me to understand what God expects of me and to help me to be conformed to the image of Christ. All Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking. We better not do that. Correcting and training in righteousness. You know, you can read great literature and just be amazed at the beauty of it, at the power of it, and walk away from it and it not change your life. It might. Reading Shakespeare has actually changed a lot of people's lives. If you're doing that with the Scripture, you're not really reading the Scripture. Now, when we talk about God, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, this is the understanding, the Holy Spirit will use the Scripture, and He'll look at you and say, that Scripture applies right now, do this. And at that point, we can say yes or no, or we can just ignore Him. I mean, that's what we do. The Scripture teaches us how we ought to live our life. It rebukes us when we're going the wrong way. It corrects us by showing what the right way is, and it helps us to progress in righteousness, to train. That's what the Scripture is for. It isn't just some abstract academic topic. It is the Word of God. Romans 15, 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And just for your background information, we're in a world that needs some hope. And we have it in the scripture. Ah. I told you about the Baptist faith and message. There it is on the scripture. As part of this series of working through the doctrinal statement, I would like to point out what some other believers believe, okay? Uh, not as a form of criticism, but just as a form of understanding so that when we talk to our friends of other persuasions, we will know what they're coming from. This is the Baptist faith and message, just as a Clue, the Baptists are in complete agreement with us. The Reformed tradition is in complete agreement with us. The Roman Catholic position, they believe the Bible is the Word of God, but they also believe the church itself is the interpreter of the Scripture. I was actually amazed the first time I ever came across this. Uh, I was reading some Catholic thing, and it quoted some verse, and I'm going, I looked that verse up in my Bible, and I'm going, that verse doesn't say what you just said it said. How can that be? Well, then I pulled out my Catholic Bible, and I looked up that verse, and there's the verse, and down below in a footnote, it says, the Council of Trent says this verse means that. And guess what? 
When the Council of Trent says this verse means that, that verse means that. Okay? You probably might have a study Bible of some sort. I'm a big fan of the ESV study Bible. It's got notes out the wazoo. It's great stuff. But those notes are not the Word of God. Now, back to the good old Bible church that we're in. Um, My mother will tell me when she was growing up, the notes in the Schofield Bible were almost equivalent to the Scripture itself. Okay? I have a Schofield Bible. He's wrong sometimes, too. Great notes, though. So in the Roman Catholic tradition, the church can add on to what is actually contained in the Scripture. And anyway, uh, others, well, it's all over the map. This is what we started with a while ago. Uh, I was sitting on an airplane one time. Guy sat next to me. I asked him what he did. He was a Methodist minister. And before I could say anything, he said, I'm part of the Methodist church that still believes the Bible. And I go, great. (laughs) The implication being that there's some parts of it that aren't so sure. Okay. We're going to look at these different traditions as we work our way through the doctrinal statement. Uh, Just to give us some understanding of what the world believes. Now, once again, this is not a club to beat different groups over the head. Um, In 1987, we were living in Virginia. And there was a huge, large, huge conference in downtown Washington, D.C. about the inerrancy of the Scripture. And I went. I mean, I heard J.I. Packer and Oz Guinness and Chuck Colson and, I mean, all these big-name people spoke. And R.C. Sproul, who is a member of the Reformed community but no slouch as a theologian, was talking at one early morning session, and he was taking questions and answers. I mean, he was giving answers. He was taking questions. And somebody stood up. Remember, we're at an international conference on biblical inerrancy. And somebody stood up and asked the question, do you have to believe in biblical inerrancy in order to be a Christian? And R.C. Sproul, without hesitating, said, no. Now, you need it for good church order and discipline, but you can become a believer just by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So none of this is a club to beat people over the head with, but it helps us to understand what we believe. So conclusion, we believe the Bible is God's word and is without error. The Bible will be the basis for the rest of this doctrinal statement. Everything that we're going to put talk about is taken from an understanding of the Bible. I just threw this one in here. When you're talking with your unbelieving friend and you say, the Bible says this, they may or may not accept that as a logical answer, okay? They may not argue with you, but okay. But when we go through the rest of this doctrinal statement and I say, the Bible says, God is this, 
we as believers have some responsibility to accept the authority of the Scripture. Now, you may not understand it. I may not understand it. We may have a different interpretation, but we accept the fact that the Bible is the authority. And I say that, this is the practical part of all of this, I say that because we as believers today in the Christian community don't always accept that. We live in a society who just doesn't like the idea of authority at all. So when I say the, authority, the Bible is our authority for life and understanding and belief, a lot of us are going, yeah, but what does science tell us? You know, I can sit here and tell you, love your enemy, but you're waiting for some psychology study to see if that actually works or not. Well, maybe it works and maybe sometimes it doesn't work. But you know what? The scripture says to love your enemy. So, anyway. And obviously, there's the Bible. We are out of time. We rushed through a lot of stuff. Hopefully next week we'll slow down a little bit. I doubt it. All scripture is inspired by God. Every book on that list up there is inspired by God. It is authoritative, and you can trust it. And that is what this congregation bases its doctrinal statement on. So for the next however many weeks, 10 weeks, we're going to look at the Scripture and what it has to say about God, about man, about angels, about the church, about the second coming, and about marriage and sexuality. Let's close in prayer. Dearly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be taking the word and applying it to our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.